And if Washington doesn't have enough to talk about these days, the Washington Times reported today that unidentified White House aides in the Carter, Reagan, and Bush administrations now are being investigated for using the services of a callboy ring. The paper reports that two of the male prostitutes were given a late-night tour of the White House last year. The White House press secretary, Marlon Fitzwater, said he knew nothing of this investigation. NBC's Lisa Myers reports her sources in the U.S. Attorney's Office say the investigation is not focusing on prostitution, but on fraud involving the use of credit cards to pay for the callboy service. The Washington Times report today that D.C. police and the Internal Revenue Service are investigating a male prostitution ring whose clients may have included people connected to the Bush and Reagan administrations. But the sources told CBS News there is no indication at present that the investigation involves any high government or military officials. Friday, November 10th, 1989, room 429 of Boston's Ritz-Carlton Hotel, 5.30 a.m. Dressed in a black tuxedo, white bow tie, and suspenders, he'd always been known as a dandy, and today was no different. He placed his birth certificate and will where they could be seen by whoever found him, and he moved the bed so that it blocked the door, which the police would later have to saw in half to gain entrance. He laid down with his Walkman containing a cassette of Mozart's A Little Night Music, and a newspaper clipping. It was about efforts to protect CIA agents from having to testify before government agencies. Then he called a friend in Virginia so he wouldn't be alone. He told the friend not to have any regrets, and noted that he had taken a lot of pills. He began to sound incoherent, and the friend immediately hung up to call the front desk to try and save him. Unfortunately, he checked in under an assumed name. He left a note in black felt-tip marker on the mirror in his room. It read, Chief, Consider this my resignation effective immediately. As you always said, you can't ask others to make a sacrifice if you are not ready to do the same. Life is duty. God bless America. Ever the gentleman, he included a polite postscript that said, To the Ritz, please forgive this inconvenience. You're listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. Hello, I'm your host, Jay Harvey, and I have Patreon subscribers. Do you believe it? Two of them. I'm so proud. Thank you to Rob and to new subscriber, Kat. And let me say that I have no shame in noting that I've only got two subscribers right now because they are very dear to me. And if it's only they who can enjoy Wicked Gay bonus episodes and content, it's reason enough to keep cranking them out. But if you want to sign up too, it's Wicked Gay slash Patreon. You know where to go, right? Okay, enough about me. How are you? Enjoying your summer? As I record this, we've entered the sort of summertime sadness stretch, you know, like when Pride and Bear Week in Provincetown are in the rearview mirror, and the days take on a sameness. A blazingly hot sameness. Blazingly hot to a terrifying, record-breaking degree sameness from what I've read. Thanks for not being a hoax climate change, you asshole. So, hopefully tonight's story can distract you from a slowly baking alive. The man we're going to learn about tonight was a fascinating and possibly demonic sort of fellow who lived a life of lavish parties, stylish clothing, and hobnobbing with the social and political elite of Washington, D.C. 
He was also up to his ears in male prostitutes, cocaine, and the electronic listening devices he allegedly had planted throughout his home for blackmail purposes. Craig Spence was a former television journalist turned Washington, D.C. lobbyist and man about town, someone who was once referred to as Washington's Jay Gatsby. But in reality, he was all about the shadowy intrigue. Was he really tricking his party guests and other acquaintances into compromising positions and then blackmailing them? Was he actually spending $20,000 a pop on male hookers and taking them on midnight tours of the White House? Spoiler alert on those last two, yes and maybe. Did he work for the CIA as he claimed throughout his life? Why did he take his life at age 49? And was one of the darkest accusations you can make against a man really true? Let's find out. This is episode 42, Midnight at the White House. Craig Spence. Sources for this episode include YouTube, Wikipedia, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and especially The Washington Times. Craig Spence's beginnings are pretty vague, no matter which source you consider. What is known is that the International Man of Mystery was born on October 25, 1940, and friends always said they believe he'd hailed from upstate New York. He received a degree in communications and broadcasting at BU in 1963. After graduation, he worked as a news secretary for the Speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, moved on to New York City to work for WCBS, and then moved to Southeast Asia to become a Vietnam War correspondent for ABC in 1969. During this time, he worked side-by-side side with another correspondent who became one of his besties, a woman named Liz Trotta, who would go on to become a Fox News type. And when I say Fox News type, I mean that she once went on that network and suggested that Obama be assassinated. So she's a cutie. She pops up later in the Spence story. Also around this time, Spence started claiming he worked for the CIA. Was it true? All signs would later point to maybe. There's no definitive proof, though. If he was, he, uh, he wasn't a very good agent. Because he was telling people that he worked for the CIA, you just kind of don't do that if you're a spy, right? Remember Valerie Flame or Plame? Once that got out, it was all over the papers. While in Vietnam, Spence reportedly had a falling out with his bosses at ABC because he felt that the slant they were giving the war in their broadcasting was too liberal. You see, Craig Spence was a hardline conservative. So they eventually moved him to Tokyo, where he ended up doing public relations consulting for the government-supported Japan External Trade Organization, as well as other Japanese corporations. And he kind of balanced this while also working as a stringer for Britain's Daily Mail and some radio stations. But the PR consulting allowed him to make contacts that would later help him in his next career as a DC lobbyist. In fact, he would become a registered lobbyist for Japanese business interests in 1985. He spent almost a decade living and working in Japan during a time known as Japan's Economic Miracle, the country's record period of economic growth after World War II right up until the end of the Cold War. During this period, Japan became the world's second largest economy after the US. Spence hopped right on that gravy train. As the Washington Times would later report, he made tons of contacts in Japan, and he would brag about being pals with Japanese luminaries like the former Prime Minister Yasuhiro Nakasone. One acquaintance of Spence's, who would know him in Japan and later on in Washington, D.C., described him as, quote, strange, saying that he often bragged that he was working for the CIA, and one said that he was going to disappear for a while, quote, because he had an important CIA assignment. He also told the guy that the CIA might double-cross him and kill him, making him look like a suicide. So again, you don't talk about the CIA if you're in the CIA. 
This same guy also talked about Spence's parties in DC, including a birthday party that he threw for, guess who, demonic imp and wicked gay favorite Roy Cohn. And when Roy's around, you know there's evil gayness afoot. Another time that he said Spence stormed into another party with a big white hat on and an entourage of security guards and bodyguards. He said it was all rather bizarre. In the late 70s, Spence returned to the US, settling in Washington, DC, and he did indeed become a party-hurling high society regular and a flamboyant one at that, wearing English cut suits, smoking a pipe, hiring a driver and bodyguards. He often sported a red-lined cape at parties he threw and was telling anyone that would listen that he worked for the CIA and his house was bugged. Two questions. One, did the cape clash with the big white hat? And two, did he know the first rule about the CIA is don't talk about the CIA? Clearly not. And he must have been really good at his job because after he came back to Washington in 79, the Tokyo-based nonprofit Policy Study Group that he repped reportedly lent him $345,000 to buy this big imposing stone party house on Wyoming Avenue in the Calorama section of DC, which is I think the Northwest. Granted, it did, serve as the, it did serve as the policy study group's U.S. headquarters, but mostly it was so Spence could live there and throw parties and I'm assuming, as we'll learn later, host a lot of sex workers. He also reportedly told people that the real story behind the house was that he was blackmailing clients in Japan. A former U.S. Foreign Service official who worked for Spence in the mid-1980s said, quote, He pretty much blackmailed a Japanese client. The Japanese put up the money for Spence to buy a big house in Wyoming Avenue. I heard he later had a quarrel with this Japanese, this guy referred to him as this Japanese, okay, because he was really using this house to advance his own purposes, not for the Japanese. But he threatened to expose that they had transferred the money illegally, so it made the Japanese back down, end quote. Then another friend confirmed this and said that Spence bragged that he had beaten, quote, a very rich old line Japanese family out of this money. While continuing to improve trade relations between Japan and the U.S. and making scads of money himself, Spence would throw these lavish parties at the Big Stone House, something that would kind of lead to his downfall. He slowly became a social register planetoid that the rest of the D.C. fancy pants people orbited around. He was such a big to-do that the New York Times did a feature on him in 82 titled, Have Names Will Open the Right Doors. The paper treated him as the go-to guy when it came to Japan and Japanese culture in Washington, D.C. Here's an excerpt from the, um, the Times article. And, oh, forewarning, the term oriental is used and not in a rug sort of way. Oh, dear. Quote, Craig J. Spence finds much to admire in oriental society. He likes to tell the story of a Japanese food service manager who, after some of his customers suffered food poisoning, committed suicide as a way of apologizing. Now that's what I call quality control, said Mr. Spence, who is something of a mystery man who dresses in an Edwardian dandy style. Mr. Spence, 41 years old, is also a former television correspondent who now wears many hats, including international business consultant, party host, registered foreign agent, and something called a research journalist. Other interesting tidbits in the Times article was the observation that Craig's greatest strength was his ability to master the social and political chemistry of the city, that city being DC, to make and use important connections and to bring together policymakers, power brokers, and opinion shapers at parties and seminars. 
The Times noted that his increasingly famous parties at the imposing stone house in the Calorama section boasted a guest list made up of a veritable who's who of government and journalism. These included New York Times political columnist William Sapphire, former attorney general and convicted Nixon flunky John Mitchell, and conservative activist and feminism's archenemy Phyllis Shafley. Apparently, closeted actor Rock Hudson was over a couple times, too. Oh, and in her memoirs, Liz Trotta, remember her, she's the one who wanted Obama dead and she was Spence's bestie. She claimed that other party guests at his house included Ted Koppel, former CIA director William Casey, and CBS journalist Eric Severide. And speaking of Liz Trotta's memoirs, she would also reveal that she once took advantage of a tour Craig Spence offered her, a late night tour of the White House. Now, I don't mean a bathhouse called the White House or a club with the ironic name of the White House. I mean the one on Pennsylvania Avenue, a Lincoln Bedroom, Rose Garden, Bowling Alley, where Trump's future Little Debbie snack cake rappers would be strewn about eventually. That one. The home of the leader of the free world. And I'm sure probably one of the most well-guarded domiciles in human history. Or so we thought. We'll get to those tours in a second. What else went on at Craig Spence's parties? As one friend, and I should put that in quotes, friend, because this person doesn't sound like the most loyal friend, said, quote, he conned people into going to parties, big people, cabinet members and personalities and so forth. Everybody likes to go to a free party around here. He'd have a photographer there, get his photo taken with a great man and use that, meaning he would use the photos to further his reputation in town and make more deals and make more money and seem more important that way. This guy went on to say, He was quite secretive, but from what I could see, these things had little or no substance. Usually a grain of truth, but he'd build a pile of lies on top of it. Usually he'd start with a photograph of himself with some guy and build a lie around it, that he was his top advisor. Nakasone, the former prime minister of Japan, was one. End quote. Oh, and also at these parties, and this wasn't a crime, just kind of local color for this story, People who attended said that he had what he called his personal honor guard, which is made up of tall, handsome, stalwart young men. He liked to surround himself with decorations, as one person put it. I mean, yeah, decorations. I mean, better than shiplap and a gather sign, right? Live, love, laugh. Ugh, no thank you. And those were the party details that were kind of innocuous. We would get to the real dirt when a certain article came out. Washington, D.C.'s conservative daily newspaper is called the Washington Times, and it would publish what would be the beginning of Craig Spence's fall from grace. On June 29, 1989, in a front-page story, the paper ID'd Craig as a major customer and patron of a mail escort service run by a man named Henry Vinson. The service had been raided in February and was currently under investigation by the Secret Service, the D.C. Police, and the U.S. Attorney's Office for credit card fraud. Vincent was also suspected of using a funeral parlor to launder money. Inventive! He would later write a book, and the book would feature quite a bit about Craig Spence, none of it good, and some of it was kind of nightmare fuel, but I'll get to that. The Times wrote about Spence's misdeeds under the headline, Served Drugs, Sex at Parties, Bugged for Blackmail, and the story flat out stated that Spence, quote, bugged the gatherings to compromise guests, provided cocaine, blackmailed some associates, and spent up to $20,000 a month on male prostitutes. And it allegedly wasn't just Spence spending money on hot ass. The paper claimed that key figures in both the Reagan and Bush administrations leased penis through Henry Vinson. 
These clients allegedly included, quote, several top government and business officials from Washington and abroad. And these guys were reportedly identified by the escorts, as well as by hundreds of credit card vouchers obtained by the, the Washington Times. Okay, if you were a well-known person, wouldn't you pay cash for this service? Why leave a paper trail, I ask the, quote, government officials, locally based U.S. military officers, businessmen, lawyers, bankers, congressional aides, media representatives, and other professionals, end quote, that were alleged clients of Mr. Vincent's enterprise? Why would you not use cash? And to me, one of the more WTF revelations was that whole Craig Spence had spent up to $20,000 a month on those hookers. A month. He paid that multiple times, apparently. That must have been some ass. I mean, we're talking Dick Grayson as Nightwing ass. We're talking America's, the UK's, Europe's, mainland China's ass. That's expensive ass. But the detail from the story that the media really glommed onto was that it claimed that two of the male prostitutes from Henry Vinson's service had been on one of those midnight tours of the White House. This one supposedly occurred during 4th of July weekend of 88, and was allegedly arranged by Craig Spence. Now, please let me stress that I don't think that it's any worse that sex workers were getting forbidden tours of the White House late at night than if, like, the lay people were, which it, which the story also claimed people were. But much was, I mean, come on, people are very down on sex workers, so this is the 80s. Much was made of the fact that rent boys were admiring Mamie Eisenhower's China or whatever. Spence was allegedly facilitating these tours for his friends, slash clients, slash least dick, slash anyone he wanted to impress. He was arranging them supposedly through a White House guard named Reginald De Geldry, De Geldry, sorry about the pronunciation, Reginald, if you're listening. Exactly how many tours took place is unknown, but it was supposedly many. One person who allegedly went on one of these tours told Times that his group walked through all the public areas of the White House and, quote, even took pictures of ourselves in the barber's chair. You know, I would have taken pictures of myself in the bowling alley, but that's just me. Law enforcement tried to put a pin in our balloon by claiming that no one on these tours was a prostitute. So I guess there actually weren't hookers, which is a shame because all walks of life should be allowed to visit tourist destinations. You know what? There was enough talk about it being sex workers that I feel like it might be true. Were there smoke? Anyway, Spence was on other tours of the White House, just not the 4th of July one, according to authorities. And in addition to Reggie the White House guard, he was also said to have been helped by a Secret Service agent who accepted a Rolex watch and a piece of White House China as payment. I hope it was a gravy boat. I would think Secret Service guys would get paid well considering that they're risking their lives for the most important person in the world, but I guess a Rolex was a Rolex back then. As one of these tour recipients put it, quote, it was a show the flag time for Craig Spence. He just wanted everyone to know just how damn powerful he was. And when we were strolling through the White House at one o'clock in the morning, we were believers. And it was supposedly more than just Ronnie the White House guard and the Rolex gravy bow guy helping Spence. One tour guest claimed it was cleared by a uniformed Secret Service guard whom he had seen attending Craig's parties as a, as a bodyguard. This guy noted that, quote, for once in his life, Craig was doing something nice. 
we just thought, neat, we get a free midnight tour of the White House. I mean, I get it. It's not your typical, like, cruise ship excursion. And after the White House probed when this all came to light, they ended up furloughing three guards. It was publicly stated that the president's and and his family's security wasn't compromised, though. And it was also noted that security guards were allowed to give private tours. Yeah, but 1 a.m., that late at night. Also, the uh, the current president, uh, when the article came out, uh, who was, I believe, was it, it was 89, so that would have been Reagan still? Hold on. Sorry, that was the year that Bush took over. Anyway, the current president had been briefed about the situation. Uh, but I, I, I love the fact that whichever one it was who got briefed on this had to discuss male sex workers. <laughs> it's funny. In the meantime, Spence became a person of everyone's interest in D.C., And he must have been selling copies of the Times because that paper went all in on him and continued to publish some pretty heavy allegations. In the next story, friends and guests of Craig Spence's told the Times that Spence's home was wired up with extensive surveillance equipment, and he had been enticing his party guests into sexual encounters with sex workers and secretly videotaping them. Drilling down here, one described Spence as a dangerous friend to cultivate. Another source mentioned an eight-foot-long two-way mirror overlooking the house's library, which he said he was later told was used for spying on guests. It supposedly had a working video camera behind it. One guy said Spence sent a limo for him one night, which brought him to a gathering at which several young men tried to get with him. Quote, I didn't bite. It's not my inclination. Okay, fine. He doth protest too much. But he used his homosexual network for all it was worth. This guy was also on one of the White House tours, so I guess he wasn't that offended by the whole, you know, get with these guys thing. He said he was blackmailing people. He was taping people and blackmailing them. Another lurid detail was that a male soldier told the Times that Spence had gotten him to get with a female sex worker, secretly photographed it, and then blackmailed this guy into, quote, beating up a couple of guys. Craig also tried to get the soldier into bed, who said he refused. As retaliation, Spence reportedly showed pictures of this unnamed soldier with the sex worker to the soldier's wife, leading her to leave him. So these parties sound like they were all surveillance and cocaine, and that they n- neither of these, you know, components were doing great things for Spence's uh, health or health, mental or physical. Friends of his, including Liz Trotta, talked about what they saw as his ongoing physical and mental deterioration. A Georgetown University law professor who said he was a close friend of Spence's until his behavior, quote, began deteriorating quite markedly, end quote, said he was at a gathering at the house and chatting with Liz Trotta one night. He said, we were sitting in a corner talking about our mutual concern about Craig's physical condition. He came down later and said he had been listening to us and didn't appreciate it at all. You know, more evidence that the entire house was bugged. Liz Trotta backed the professor up, saying, It was one in a series of incidents when she began to worry about Craig. He was fragmenting right before our eyes, she said. I was very concerned about him. He does sound like he was starting to lose it. Multiple people, including an Air Force sergeant, stated that Craig was flat out telling everyone that his house was bugged. Why would you tell everybody? And that he loved to swoop into a room and repeat back entire conversations he'd just listened to to the startled guests. Okay, who are the people still going to these parties? Were the hired dudes that good? Like, what? Okay. And yes, another alleged feature of Spence's wild parties was the disco dust. 
This could also account for his erratic behavior. Apparently, he was smuggling and using cocaine. He was described as generous with the powder at his parties. Quote, I know he was a coke freak. A lot of people saw it, the cocaine use. His behavior spoke for itself, said one business associate. This story makes it seem like everyone Spence knew was a turncoat traitor to his cause, doesn't it? Like, all these people kind of turned on him and informed on him. Must have been a real asshole. Craig apparently also bragged that U.S. military personnel for whom he had built a gymnasium in El Salvador. He'd received a, uh, a plaque and everything. He claimed that this, these uh, military guys had smuggled cocaine back to him when they returned to the United States. I heard he was selling drugs or smuggling drugs into the country from El Salvador, one source said. By the way, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration officials told the Times that they had no evidence of his military coke deal. After the exposés, Craig began to spiral. His lobbying business was collapsing because Japan doesn't like scandals. And he began telling people that he had AIDS and was thinking of taking his own life. He would tell other friends that neither was true. Well, we know one of them was. And instead of cutting down on the sex workers, he ramped it up. He also reportedly began abusing crack cocaine too, which we all know is a hellish drug to get hooked on. A friend later claimed he began making constant references to death and told her that he was considering checking out. And then he vanished when he learned the feds were after him with a subpoena to testify in August about Henry Vincent's hooker ring. The Secret Service later said the subpoena was served to him August 7th in New York City, and they not only wanted to discuss his dealings with the escort service, but also his connection to one of their own agents. The, the guy who claimed Craig had given him a Rolex get a tour or tours of the White House after hours. Spence's lawyer would later claim that the FBI withdrew the subpoena. But on July 31st, 1989, Spence was back in the papers after he was arrested at Manhattan's Barbizon Hotel on East 63rd Street for criminal possession of cocaine and an illegal 32 caliber pistol. He was eventually released on his own recognizance. High privilege. After his death, Spence's attorney told the press that his hearing on those charges had been scheduled for November and that Craig Spence had planned to appear. The legal eagle claimed Spence was never in possession of the gun and the drugs, and that there was no case against him. And speaking of crack, it's not known if Spence had been on the pipe when he consented to an eight-hour interview with the Washington Times at his bestie Liz Trotta's apartment in Manhattan to give his side of the story. I mean, why? They've ruined your life, pretty much, so why would you? I mean, I've been led to believe that you should issue a short statement in these things and keep it pumping, Queen, because, you know, move on, because the news cycle is quick and people forget about it eventually. In the interview... Spence said he had spent a night on a bench in Central Park after running out of money while in New York. I mean, $20,000 on hookers. Of course he did. He confirmed that the White House guard guy, Ronnie, wasn't alone in aiding and abetting the White House tours, and that he did act as a guide in some of them. In fact, Craig told the Times reporters that the tours were arranged by, quote, top-level persons, and then he gave a name. Donald Gregg, National Security Advisor to George H.W. Bush. Greg himself dismissed the allegation as, quote, absolute bull, according to the reporters. It disturbs me that he can reach a slimy hand out of the sewer to grab me by the ankle like this. The allegations are totally false. And then Craig Spence started flapping his gums about the CIA again. He, he brought the affiliation back in, the either real or imagined affiliation with the CIA, 
and told the reporters that the surveillance equipment at his house, which he confirmed, had been set up by, quote, friendly intelligence agents. So Craig's been claiming to be in the CIA since his Vietnam days, and people started to actually maybe kind of sort of believe it because he was saying it so much, I guess. There was speculation that the CIA was bankrolling him for some reason. Gotta afford those fancy capes. And the reason would be, I guess, blackmail material on people they wanted to control or whatever. Then he got real grandiose and claimed that the drugs, illegal firearms, callboy addiction, the bugged house, and the blackmail brags and accusations were just the tip of the iceberg when it came to what he was really involved in. He said, quote, all this stuff you've uncovered, to be honest with you, is insignificant compared to other things I've done, but I'm not going to tell you those things, and somehow the world will carry on. True, but that's still super annoying to say that and not give some details, right? He had also told this to Liz Trotta, or so she claimed, saying that the authorities wouldn't be able to solve the, quote, big thing. I might have a clue as to what he was talking about, but I'm going to save that for the end of the episode. Two weeks before Craig Spence put on his tuxedo to unalive himself, he had a production company come to his home. Seriously, a production company. Why didn't you just use the mirror cam? Anyway, they were there to shoot a seven-minute-long final video message to his friends. In the video, he explained that he was doing it, quote, in case I ever disappear, but it also doubled as a suicide note. So in the video, he's sitting in a leather chair in his dining room, and reportedly he looked healthy despite the AIDS rumors and the alleged crack cocaine addiction. Uh, He was reportedly upbeat and avoided talking about his impending plans, you know, suicide, and he joked that his Maltese dog uh, named Winston had been maligned in the newspaper stories about him as a terrier. He alluded to his public shaming, saying, quote, the pressures on us over the past several years have been, let us say, significant. Keeping a cheerful spirit in the midst of these pressures isn't easy, but Winston's holding up and I'm working at it. He went on to bag on the Washington Times, referring to it as a local cult-owned newspaper, which by the way was accurate. Fun fact, the Times was created by and is still owned by Unification Church leader Sung Myung Moon, you know, the Moonies, so it was owned by a cult and is owned by a cult. He mostly went in on the government, though, saying it distorted the, quote, Craig Spence puzzle. He said, The government, through its various agencies and ambitious officials, sometimes looks right at the key pieces and cannot or will not see the picture. Worse, it sometimes pockets a piece or two to ensure that the puzzle is never put together. So cryptic. He also defended his patriotism, which he felt was maligned by the blackmail accusations. He also showed off that plaque given to him by the Marines after he contributed money for a military gymnasium in El Salvador, which, I mean, I'm not sure that confirms the military coke deal, but he did know the military. He closed by saying, Some of you may know when it comes to the intelligence community, there is no such thing as coincidence. Now, I'm not sure I've seen the whole picture yet myself. I'll close by telling you I'm sure that in the end the truth will come out and this too will pass. Now, I may be naive about my optimism, but I'm an American proud of my country and confident of the fairness of its people. So take heart, good friends, and share that pride and that confidence with me. Good night and God bless. He arranged for almost a dozen copies of these numbered videotapes to be sent out, including one to the Washington Post. He also sent a friend six cardboard boxes containing old television broadcasts of his and American Asian policy study papers that he felt made up his legacy. He also left his Maltese Winston with a personal aide, and I hope that Winston went on to have a long, happy, and fulfilling life after Craig 
took his own. And then a week later, he went to Boston, where he spent his time visiting old friends and tipping the people who waited on him with $100 bills. Then that Friday, he took his own life by overdosing on pills. I gave you some of the details in the opening, the tuxedo, the newspaper clipping, the note on the mirror. Oddly enough, seven small packets of Xanax were found by the cops at a false ceiling in the bathroom. If those were Craig's, I must ask, that was the drug you hid and not the cocaine that got you arrested? I had mentioned that he had called a friend after taking the pills, because no one wants to die alone. The friend hung up and dialed the front desk. However, it turned out that Craig checked in under an assumed name, C.F. Kane, probably referencing Charles Foster Kane, the main character in what is considered one of the greatest movies of all time, Citizen Kane. Spence's attorney called the death, quote, a tragic end to what had been until recently a very productive and interesting life. And he noted that I liked him very much. He was a good man. Eh, maybe? That's the Craig Spence story. Well, most of it. I know that I've been alluding to something throughout the episode. There's one part that I didn't go into because it's the word of just one guy. And it's super dark. The guy who owned the escort service that Craig pretty much bankrolled, it sounded like, and paid with a credit card. Uh, The guy's name was Henry Vinson. He was the madam, if you will. Henry Vinson wrote a book about his experiences as a madam. Wait, what's the male version? A whoremaster? That was a word once, right? Okay, and in the book, he claims that Spence admitted to him that the big secret he'd been alluding to in the press and to people he knew was that he was running a secret human trafficking ring with the humans in question being children and teens. Ugh. The story's kind of a nightmare, and it's tied in with another criminal case that is just rife with conspiracy theories, so it's a whole other tale in itself. So I'm going to get into it on Patreon, because the deets kind of... I don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities. I don't love talking about crimes that involve kids, but I do want to... It's sort of a... It is possibly an important part of the Craig Spence story, so I am going to talk about it on Patreon. Uh, look for it next month if you're a subscriber. And if you're not, become one. Patreon.com slash Wicked Gay. And that's all the Wicked Gay for tonight. Thank you to Gina and the Goons for Wicked Gay's theme song, Paul Chapman for the artwork, JB and Iva for the music, and the other Mr. Harvey for trying his damnedest to make me sound good. Not an easy task. Feel free to drop me a line at wickedgaypod at gmail.com and follow Wicked Gay on Facebook, Twitter, which is now an X, not a bird, TikTok, and Instagram under Wicked Gay Pod. I hope you're having a lovely summer. Stay cool. You've been listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. (laughs) 